Zito from seventh to first in the final event. You are a champion. And Oleksiak has done it! The girl from the six has got six Olympic medals. The substitute for Canada just about gets it through. It's a glory gold for Canada. Kathy Lifting goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for a very, very exciting interview. I always talk about how I love the sport of handball and we're here to talk about handball. What's not to love? We are speaking today with Tape Ramadani, who is an Australian Olympian, competed at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games for handball. And this is the first time that we've had a handball athlete on the show who's actually been to an Olympic. So very, very excited to bring this to you today. Tate talks about his incredible journey in the sport, coming from Australia to Kosovo, back to Australia again, sort of his amazing way of finding that handball was even played in Australia and literally asking people who had never even heard of the sport, they had to look it up to try and help him find how to play handball in Australia. The journey throughout the 90s to get to the Olympics, where the Australian men's handball team was at that point, a fascinating story about a secret team that was being formed by a TV station filled with athletes from sports that don't even really resemble handball as a way of potentially going to the Olympics to overtake the actual Australian men's handball team. And just what lessons we learnt post-Sydney 2000 to what we can use ahead of Brisbane 2032 and beyond to grow the sport in Australia. Because as Tape talks about, Handball became very popular in Australia for five minutes after Sydney 2000. The amount of interest that was shown after seeing handball at the Olympics was huge. But there were things that were done post-Sydney that ultimately did not enable this sport to grow to a level of where they want to be. Tabe is also currently the coach of the Australian men's handball team. So we talk a little bit around his coaching history and where he hopes to take this team ahead of Brisbane 2032. This is a fantastic chat with Tape. You're going to get so much from it. Sit back, relax, and listen to our chat with Australian Olympic handball player Tape Ramadani. Every single time we've had somebody from the great sport of handball on this show, I start off by saying, I love handball and I'm excited to have them on the show. And that is going to be the case again today. Because let me just say it again. I love handball and I'm always excited to have a guest from handball on the show. But even more excited today because for the very first time and off the podium, we actually have an Olympian from the sport of handball. A man who's an esteemed career in the sport across many countries, represented Australia for 14 or so years and also represented Australia as part of that very famous team that competed for Australia at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games and currently is serving as the head coach of the Australian men's handball team. It's a pleasure to welcome off the podium, Tate Ramadani. Tate, first of all, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, a pleasure to be here and really honoured to be here. Uh, so thank you for the invite. Well, I, 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 you're very welcome because obviously we had Caleb on uh, a couple of months ago to, to talk about it, current team member, and uh, sort of through our conversations, uh, he mentioned you and then kind of I said how keen it would be to get you on the show to sort of hear from somebody who was there in Sydney in 2000. Because as I was just saying to you off air, I feel this is something that a lot of Australian Olympic fans forget that we have competed in handball at the Olympics 
before for both men and women in 2000, a glorious time. We're going to learn about that. But is it something that comes up a lot in your sort of handball career still that you are an Olympian, that you did compete in the Olympics for Australia 23 years ago? Yeah, every now and then I'm reminded of that. For me, it seems like something that happened in the distance past. But it's good to be reminded from time to time that, yeah, we did this. Um, I have the tag of being an Olympian. I'm very proud of that. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping to to motivate and inspire the next generation to do the same when Brisbane comes along. Was this something growing up that you aspired towards, like becoming an Olympian? Was this something that as a kid you, you watched and looked and thought like, oh, this would be great? Or was it something that obviously, as we're going to discover, kind of it came about throughout your handball career? Uh, I started late uh, taking handball seriously. So as a, as a child, I watched a lot of handball. I grew up in Kosovo, the former Yugoslavia. And I remember watching a lot of handball on TV and watching basketball and football and many sports. But for some strange reason, whenever I watch handball, I had visions of myself playing handball on TV. So it was really strange. I can't explain why or how, but for some reason, I liked handball more than any other sport. And I saw myself playing like, like those guys I was watching on TV. And at the time, I'd just been playing handball at school for PE. Easy. Was it, is, is handball, or was handball at the time, you know, I think handball, European handball, it's kind of the name that sort of get given to it, given that Kosovo is part of Europe. Is it a big deal in, in that part of Europe, or was it sort of more of a, a fringe sport similar to what does he say in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big deal. Handball is probably the number two sport in, in the country. And they take it very seriously. There's a great generation of uh past handball players who who were elite players in the 70s and 80s who are now in the 50s and 60s that talk about the glory days with you know with a lot of um, passion um so they they also are caretakers of the sport and ensure that the sport continues to develop and grow and they they care a lot about the sport and it's it's really great to see that they have that connection still after all those years because in the 70s and 80s there were a lot of professional handball clubs very well um, supported by the then government. Um, they had this program to develop elite athletes and they did this across all sports. Wow. Well, what, what other sports did you play? So you mentioned that handball was kind of like your, your main one that you liked, but were you, your typical kid played a whole bunch of different other sports as well growing up? No, not really. Um, when I first came to Australia, there was no handball. So I, I tried football and that was the only sport I tried. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I enjoy football. I, I like football, but it wasn't for me. Not uh, quite. For when, you. when, yeah, when I met handball here in Australia, I, 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 you know, it stuck with me. I love the story about when you came back to Australia. I believe you were sixteen, and then you tried to find handball because this is what late eighties, when of course we didn't have the internet. There, you know, probably very limited resources in trying to find that. So, tell us about how you managed to track down the sport of handball in Australia at that period of history. Yeah, so I've been in Australia for about five, six months, um, and I put it at the back of my mind. So it was something that I wasn't going to look for again. But at the school I was going to, it was an English language center in Chester Hill in Sydney. I met a Kuwaiti guy. Uh, he was my age, and he told me that he played handball in Kuwait for the junior national team, and he loved handball, and he was a big athletic guy. And we made a pact to find a handball club, wherever that would be. So... You know, you tried white pages, you couldn't find anything. You tried yellow pages, you couldn't find anything. So we went about asking people, asking our PE teacher. He couldn't find anything. So um, somehow he got wind that there was a club 
at uh, UNSW, uh, of, made up of uh, uh, expats from Europe, students mostly. And we thought, yeah, let's just see how, what that's like. So we got on the train. We heard there was a training session sometime in the morning. We got on the train, made that an hour and a half trip. They took us to get to Kensington. And we show up and there was a full handball session in Wow! Yeah, in session. So we were, we were kind of oh, this is amazing, and and they were big, intimidating athletes. So we we kind of took a step back, but the coach that was there at the time um, scolded us for not bringing gear. So like, <laughs> if you come to a handball training, you have to train. And we were like this. Uh, I was anyway a skinny little kid, and thought there's no way I'm going in there. Wow! What an incredible story. And I can imagine. So when you go into like your your you know PE teacher and everything at your school, is it a case of are they aware of what handball it is? Or is this kind of almost like cool runnings when, you know, you got that famous scene of like, what's a bobsled? And they're looking it up in the dictionary, basically. Were, were people at least aware when you're searching for it of what it is? No, not at all. So when I spoke to my PE teacher about that, he he hadn't heard of the sport. Uh, so he'd done some research, come back the next day. And yeah, he he was, uh, yeah. And yeah, he in- encouraged us and encouraged us to try to help us as much as he could. Wow. But yeah, he hadn't seen this. He hadn't seen this sport before. That's amazing. It's amazing to think of a sport that, like, literally, no one's heard of. I guess in a country like you've come from a place where, as you're saying, this is such a big deal, and then all of a sudden, you, you've come to a place and it's not. When you go to that training session, you've got that. Was that the only team or the only sort of handball in the city, or once you sort of got connected to that team, were you finding there were other pockets of the city, or you know, maybe spread across the country where you could, I guess, expand on those skills and that love of the sport at the time? Yeah, so as soon as we met the coach there, he told us of a, of a junior program. There was a New South Wales team that was training together and there were a couple of other uh, schools that were playing the game. So we we uh, were asked to join that training training program, that New South Wales under-18 team, I think it was. And within that team, there were about 20 athletes that, were, that had been playing for a few years. And yeah, we joined that program immediately and yeah, that helped a lot uh, to play with people our age but even though they were much better than us. And I can imagine, was it mainly expats from sort of handball playing countries? Was there many local kind of like Australians who had discovered the sport through friends and kind of will come and try sessions or was it sort of a mix of both? That was a surprising thing to me. It was all Australian born kids. So there were, there was only one expat that I remember and he was from Chicago, USA. The rest were all uh, Australian kids. Most of them had gone to a school called Kilara High School. So there was a PE teacher in the school that knew the game and he was very passionate about, you know, teaching the game. So all the students came from that school. Wow. So it was like joining a school team, really. And I guess you couldn't know at that time. So what this was what, late 80s, early 90s, and obviously a few years away from Sydney being announced as a host city, which we'll touch on in a second. But I guess you couldn't know at the time what that would do for yourself and other players that no doubt were initially formed into that squad, because am I not mistaken in saying that Australia didn't have a national team at that time? The first recording of the national team that I remember was 87. Right. So that was, a, I think, yeah, a year after I started playing. So they had a national team, but they weren't playing in any official competition. So they would go and play in some friendly tournaments in Tahiti. I remember them traveling to Hong Kong a couple of times, but generally just friendly tournaments, no official championships. We were not recognized as a national team at the time. Is that a case of then when, again, I don't know if you know how this would work, but when you form a national team, you have a national team, I'm, I'm sure it's like 
well, how do we then get recognition by the International Handball Federation and so that you can get invited or take place in these tournaments? Was that still something that at that period of time wasn't happening, as you were saying? It's more just friendlies and, you know, we need to get that recognition to go to these tournaments. Yeah, so I think that it was quite a process involved to get Australia into official tournaments. Um, we had, you know, Oceania as a region, and there were no other countries in the Oceania region that were playing the sport. So we were trying to connect through Asia. And from from what I know of of the story back then, that there was, you know, uh, the late Sasha Dimitrich, who was the founder of the sport in Australia, uh, a man of great passion who worked tirelessly until he, until his last days for handball. He lobbied uh, the International Handball Federation to get Australia in international competition. And, you know, he he showed up at the important events like the Olympic Games in Seoul, where he met with IHF officials. He went to Switzerland a couple of times where the headquarters of International Handball Federations are and lobbied uh, aggressively, I would say, to try and get us that recognition. And I think by 1993, we were finally recognized as a national team. And well, it was a year earlier, maybe, 92. And, you know, we, we started taking part in official competition. So this obviously just prior then, a year or so before uh, Sydney being announced. I mean, we had a couple of months ago on the show when we were sort of talking about the 30th anniversary of Sydney being announced as the Olympic City, Bob Elphinston, who was part of the bid team, and he would talk about going around to the Federation's of the world to sort of sell Sydney. And I sort of brought up handball about like, you know, how do you sell a sport that in Australia, as you're just saying, some people don't know existed. So it's kind of interesting to see that that lobbying and I guess that recognition of Australia was still happening in that process. I'm assuming when Sydney is heavily lobbying for the Olympics at that time. Yeah. So um, I wasn't aware of the, the efforts from other organizations, but you know, handball kept, you know, doing the, their own bidding, you know, with what, whatever resources they had. And I, I know I know Sasha did this all out of his own pocket, out of his own time. He had, I don't think he had that support that he would have, um, you know, been more successful in those early days. So it was all on him. When Sydney gets announced as that Olympic city in 1993, so through all of that euphoria and everything that the city and the country is feeling, obviously planning has to take place. We've all of a sudden got to, you know, put teams together and work towards this goal of competing in the Olympics. Do you remember sort of that period and kind of like what was happening then for the national team? Was that a simple case of, okay, we've got an Olympics in seven years time. If you guys keep up your standard, you're going to be Olympians. I mean, do you remember kind of what that period was like knowing that you've got this opportunity to go to an Olympic games? Yeah. So it was, um, I think 92, 93, when we were, you know, starting to get that energy Knowing that the Olympic decision would, the Olympic host decision would be made in '93, sometime, uh, we were really excited. And I remember watching that event live, the announcement of the of the host city live, and it was such a big thrill when we got when when we heard Sydney. I was watching it with one of my other teammates, and you know immediately we knew what that would mean to our sport because we'd been struggling, you know, not getting enough international tournaments. We'd been struggling with funding. We'd been struggling with a whole heap of things, not even getting the right venues to train in. So immediately we thought this is going to be a great, you know, a boost for our sport. You know, <laughs> finally we can start focusing on, you know, developing the national team the way it deserves to be developed. So, yeah, it was an exciting time. Which 
I did read about at that point, there was obviously a lot of funding injected into, I'm guessing, all sports that were Olympic sports by the AOC and other places. And that initially there was funding given to handball, but then it was taken away. So, so I mean, what does that do then to the sport? And, and sort of what was there a decision around why is what was it handball? We're not going to win a medal for the Olympics. So maybe we're not going to give as much money as, as we want to. And then all of a sudden it's back on you guys to kind of fund yourselves in the lead up to the Olympics. Yeah, that, that's a big mystery to us all. You know, in 95, you know, we were well-funded. We were traveling the world. We were getting a lot of international tournaments and matches and training, you know, at the Australian Institute of Sport quite a lot. You know, we had a professional training program and it felt great to be part of that program. You know, we, we didn't have to, you know, dig out of our own pockets to pay for anything. We were even given some support for, you know, for those who were working to for missing out on work. So... It was an amazing time to be part of um, part of handball, uh, national handball team, because you you saw yourself as an elite athlete. And then suddenly, I think it was ninety eight or ninety nine that funding got completely pulled out of us. So so we we no longer had any support of any kind, and we had to go it alone. And we had some some really passionate people who worked very hard to raise funds for us. But it wasn't the same. We felt a, 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 like a, a light which had gone off, wow. you know, from from having the best venues, the you know top level international matches, to to going and training back in you know dimly lit halls that were not full size, that were you know not even having the right equipment to train with, and not having access to the halls, which was the worst. You know, I remember in '99, one year out of the Olympic Games, we didn't have enough access to training halls. So we'd be training outside, we'd be doing a lot of strength and conditioning, but not as much handball as we, we needed to and wanted to. Wow, that's crazy. Because the venues, obviously, at the at Sydney Olympic Park that they use, I mean, I, I can't imagine they're, they're dressing that and making that sort of available as handball courts until closer to the Olympics, right? So, I mean, even sort of in that period, as you're saying, with where you can even train, do you consider going to other countries to train or because the money is so limited you obviously probably couldn't really go elsewhere i mean how do you kind of work around that to try and get yourself very ready ahead of those olympics yeah so we had access to uh, an old gym at the at the university university uh, hk ward gym i think it's been torn apart now but and that was okay but all the students used that as well so we were competing with you know all the uni teams uh, for times and it was always very difficult to get access to that and so what happened was a, a, a few of the national team players decided to go abroad including me i went to hungary for for a year i think in 97 98 but many of my teammates did the same and that kind of helped with our development um uh, but those who stayed behind i know they they had a big struggle to to get the training that they wanted or needed there's a great story, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, about this sort of mystery team that was put together uh, ahead of the Olympics, which we'll touch on. But before we get to that, just once that, from that announcement sort of throughout the 90s up until the year 99, 2000, was there an influx in interested parties trying to get into handball or was it more of a case of maybe you had some Australians who were living overseas sort of coming back to Australia to kind of put their hand up? I mean, I guess just in terms of the national team, where was it, say, in 91, 92 versus... 95, 96, when obviously the Olympics were a prospect versus a few years before when it, it wasn't. Yeah, 91, 92, a fringe sport no one knew about. You know, we were, you know, 
I don't think we're even pretending to recruit players. We, we were who we were. We trained, we played matches whenever we could. There was probably six clubs in all of Sydney, and that's all we had. Uh, 95, 96, the interest suddenly, you know, exploded. And there were a lot of a lot of people wanting to play handball because that one heard of it, and two, they had aspirations to be at the Olympic Games. I remember uh, New South Wales having 10, 12 teams um, of men, about the same of women. Uh, Melbourne having two leagues. This was, you know, incredible. They had, you know, a, a first division and sec- second division that's unheard of and, and unheard of since as well. Wow. Um, same in Queensland. So there was three really strong states. South Australia was deeply involved as well. So there was a lot of handball players going around. Um, uh, but you know, we the national team was was another story. And a lot of these players, you know, probably weren't the right level to be in the national team. But you know, there was a lot of players wanting to be part of that program. Before I get to the secret game again as well, uh, I believe 1999 first ever world championship appearance. And was this done qualifying or was this sort of like an invitation? How did that sort of work a year out from the Olympics? Do they sort of look at the host city to try and give that? Because I can imagine uh, the International Handball Federation sort of questioning a little bit Australia's ability about how they will go at an Olympics based on that sort of lack of experience in international competitions. Yeah, so before 1999 World Championship, we had uh, our first World Championship qualification event was in 95. We didn't qualify because we had to go through Europe. You know, that was a tough ask. We had to play Romania. Uh, the next one, it's every two years. So the next one was uh, in Iceland, in, sorry, in Japan in 97. We didn't qualify for that either. And then 1999 came around one year out of the Olympic Games. The International Handball Federation said, well, we've got to do something to get Australia some exposure to a proper international event. So they gave us a wild card to go to the World Championship in Egypt, and that was an eye-opening experience for all of us. We were, you know, <laughs> just shocked at what was involved to be just part of the, that, that event. And it was, you know, a, a great experience for us leading up to the Olympic Games. Because I, I remember in the lead-up to the, the Beijing Winter Olympics last year, you know, there were questions, say, around the Chinese men's ice hockey team because it comes from that same level of, well, they don't really get that exposure. And we've just seen that in the, the Men's Basketball World Cup that uh, I believe it was Indonesia sort of had to qualify because they weren't on that level and they ultimately didn't qualify. So were there constant questions around, well, is this going to be maybe a bit embarrassing or something because this is a team that doesn't get that level of exposure that some of these countries are? I mean, were there potential questions raised about will Australia be allowed to have a team in handball? Yes, all the time, you know, and we were capable athletes. We were working very hard. A lot of us had been exposed to top level European leagues. And it kind of, you know, getting those questions uh, asked of us all the time kind of chipped away at at our confidence and it affected us eventually in the big tournaments because we were always in the back of our mind. No one really believes in us. You know, they they are saying that we're going to be – uh, an embarrassing you know outfit at the Olympic Games um and that came a bit from ignorance and a bit from you know a lack of international matches but it it really played with our confidence a lot uh, which then added to that this secret game which I'm so fascinated to hear more about Tate because like I'm not even gonna I don't even want to introduce this tell, tell people about this because this talking about that confidence to, to have this sort of secret team formed, that they think would be capable to go to an Olympics. I mean, that must even affect that even more. 
Yeah, so sometime in 98, I believe, uh, there was a, a new sports channel called, uh, it was something to do with Channel 7. I can't remember C7. the name. C7? C7, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, they wanted to do a reality show kind of handball team um, and, and document the whole process of developing elite level athletes from other sports into a handball team that will represent Australia at the Olympic Games. So this was a secret project that we'd never heard of. Um, and suddenly one day we're at a training camp and someone heard a rumor that there was going to be these athletes who were going to be representing Australia at the Olympic Games and we were going to be just shafted. And we were... We- we were anxious. We, we, we wanted to know what was going on. So we started asking questions and no one really knew. And then suddenly that coach comes forward and says, we have to play this training game against um, a bunch of ex-athletes. But um, yeah, uh, they'd been training. I'm not sure who was even coaching them. So uh, one day in Sydney, this, this group of players shows up to a camp that we were playing in and we were told that we had to play them in a training match. So the cameras were there. Everyone was there. Damien Keo was, I think, leading the project. Um, we had, uh, I remember quite a lot of players from basketball, but these were elite athletes, um, who were probably finishing their sporting careers. So these the are AFL. like, and these are like, like say NBL level players. These aren't just like lower sort of grade. These are actual professional. Like, and cause there were Aussie rules players, weren't there? Rugby players, cricket players as well. So these were like people who were at the top of their, their games being recruited to try and make an Olympic team. Top-level athletes that you see on TV all the time, you know, uh, the best of the best, you know, and, you know, we, I don't know, some of the guys wanted even autographs during this training game. So it was, it was that kind of atmosphere. So they came like a, wow. like a, like a big, sh- big show. Um, I remember Mark McGaw, who was a, a famous rugby player, and he was my height, but he was twice my, 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 my width. He was a solid guy. Um, Langford from AFL, Damien Keogh. It was a few cricket players that I can't recall their names. So it was was a big lineup of athletes and they were bigger than us. They were, you know, probably more athletic than us too. And, you know, they warmed up on their side. We warmed up on ours. The match started and it was chaos. It was a mess. (laughs) They they lacked the basics of handball. I mean, handball is all basic skill. It's just throwing, catching, jumping. It's, it's, it's it's not that difficult a sport to play, but you know when you play other sports for so long, you, you lose those natural skills, I guess. So they had, uh, they 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 didn't even have the basic skills of of proper throwing. They couldn't throw and jump at the same time. So, but they were solid and in defense, they they were really physical. They they loved to hit from the side, from the back, from anywhere they could. Uh, and I remember there was one incident where Mark McGall gets the ball running at full speed, probably traveled, made five or six steps without bouncing, ran straight into me. It was like a train hit you. Wow. I fell back. I went up to the coach and said, I'm out. I'm not <laughs> going to do this anymore. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> because I was, it was real risk of injury. Um, yeah. And I think after, I mean, we won that game very easily. It was, I was going to say, you creamed them right. Like. <laughs> it, was not even a, it was not even a contest. You know, we won it very easily. They, they barely managed to score a goal, I think. And then that's when they realized, no, this is not going to work. Let's pull the plug on this. That's, I mean, it's just, it's an insult. Surely that is a massive insult to think that your sport is so capable of just having a bunch of put-togethers from different sports to come in and that this is a team we're going to put to the Olympics. I mean, I can't think of any other sport that they would want to do that with. I mean, that's incredible that they even thought that was a thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it came from a, a place of ignorance because they had heard that, you know, this team of, you know, made up expats who were not athletes of any kind because um, they'd heard all the stories. So they thought, yeah, we have a crack at this. You know, we, if we beat the Australian men's team, we, we, we have a serious crack at being Olympians because our sports never provided that, you know, yeah. and never provide that opportunity. So uh, I think they was seriously considering that this is going to be a, a viable option for them. And was but, that you know, so that was the, for, so I was just going to say yeah. so that was the TV network that was the idea this wasn't like the Australian Olympic Committee or something like this this was just like a TV network's idea not that I'm aware of I think it was just C7 that was running right. this project and they and they just wanted to document a story a feel good story that was going to say in the end amazing you know uh, you know I'm not sure what the angle really was but um and after that we C7 had had a contract with Australian handball so they continued to support us and they covered the 1999 World Championship and Damien Keogh that became a really close friend of um, the national handball team and a big supporter of us. And I think he had more respect for us eventually, yes. So a bit of a silver lining that, you know, while this was kind of almost a bit of an insult, they still then took that and were like, okay, well, we'll support you guys. We respect you a little bit more now in the lead up to the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, we'd been a national team playing, training and playing field for about five, six years leading to that. You know, we... We were serious athletes, you know. We weren't just, you know, nobodies. Yeah. Just because we didn't have a name, we were, we were still athletes. What was that process like then in the lead up to, to Sydney, just in terms of selection? Was it sort of a similar case with a lot of team sports where, say, there's like an initial squad of, say, like 40 hypothetically, and then it gets cut down? I mean, kind of what was that process? And when did you know, Tate, that you were officially going to the Olympics? Yeah. So um, the initial squad leading for the Olympic Games was made up immediately after the announcement of the Olympic Games in 93, I think late 93, they they call up a squad of players and they pretty much selected uh, two teams, a team of uh, current players who were between 27, 28 to 33, 34, um, who would act as mentors and supporters for the younger generation and a team of about 20 younger players like myself who were 21 and under, who were going to be the next generation to lead Australia to the Olympic Games. So I was one of the lucky ones that was selected in that group of players, 20, I think it was in the beginning, mm -hmm. and to be part of the program. Uh, but there was always doubt, you know, back of our minds, you know, all the way up until 99 and, and, and even early 2000, there was always doubt because we'd, we'd go to tournaments with different players, you know, because coaches were always testing different players and trying to. Uh, so there was always doubt until the Olympic team was actually announced that who was going to be part of that squad it's fascinating that there's such a longevity in that kind of initial squad because I, I can't think of any other sport that i know of that you're kind of almost chosen seven years out from an olympics like i mean obviously there's a lot of things that can happen in that period but it's sort of yeah that i mean does that make it better or, or worse like is it more pressure knowing that you've kind of got to stay in shape and stay in form for seven years or does it make it better that it's not in the back of your mind that you need to learn two weeks out from an olympic sometimes that you're going yeah, the first few years were like a honeymoon. You know, we, we thought we were it. You know, we were the 20 young players. You know, if you just got to last out these 20 players and, you know, it should be good, you know. And, and just being part of that program was something really special. But then something happened in the mid-90s, late-90s. And, you know, we started to get uh, migrants from, from Europe, especially from the, the war in Yugoslavia, migrating to Australia and some Danes and some Romanians. And so suddenly we had a whole heap of players uh, who migrated to Australia, who were applying for Australian citizenship. And back then it was quite easy to do. 
and the team changed. Like in 97, 98, the team changed dramatically. So all of that 20 players, most of them were shed, you know, because wow. we now had players who'd been playing in top levels in Europe, professional players uh, who were becoming Australian. This kind of uh, send a really strong message to the team, like you've got to do, you've got to do something big to, to, to be part of this squad. Now, were these players that actually had connections to Australia or were these players that, oh, I can't make the Danish national team, where's a country I can play for, Australia? Like, was it more like that? I don't know. Um, I mean, genuinely, the, 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 the guys that came out of, the, out of Yugoslavia, they were from Bosnia, they were refugees, they were genuine refugees that had migrated to Australia, like all of the other refugees that were coming to Australia. Um, but uh, one of the players was a Dane, I, and to this day, I'm not sure why he came to Australia, but he came, he was a great player, and I still is a great friend of mine. But um, yeah, it just changed the dynamic of the team completely. Completely. So that was like one year out. And, and even leading up to the Olympic Games, a few months out, I remember two of the players uh, not having full citizenship yet. So wow. they've been selected. That the, the announcement came, I think, within three, four months of the Olympic Games. But uh, up until that day, they were still not Australian citizens. And that came in like the last minute. Wow. That, I think the Dane got his passport last Jeez, because obviously without that, they're not playing for Australia, are they? <laughs> That's right, and they, they couldn't be named in the Olympic team either. So <laughs> insane! It's it's crazy to kind of think that 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 can kind of happen there. Do, do you have a moment tape where you go to yourself, "I'm an Olympian"? I always love asking this question because some people take this differently. Whether it's the moment you're officially announced, the moment you get your uniform the opening ceremony, your first game after the Olympics. Like, did you kind of have a moment where you just, it struck you that here I am, I'm Tate Ramadami, I'm an Olympian now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that moment came uh, not after I was announced on the team because it was always like, you know, the threat in the back of your mind, the threat of injury, sickness, anything could happen. You, you know, we still had a, a bunch of reserves that were named that could come in to replace any of us. But, uh, a couple of weeks, or, sorry, a couple of months before the Olympic Games, I was. Uh, we had to do onboarding. Uh, the Australian Olympic Committee offices, where you go there and have a photo taken, and we, we were given some uniforms, some booklets, some information packages, and and we were talked about what to expect at the Olympic Games. Uh, and I sat there with a pentathlete whose name I cannot remember, and I need to check that up again. And I was sat, uh, because I, I went on my own, I didn't go with the team. So I, I sat there with this pentathlete and we were just having a chat about, you know, our, our road to this. And I was reminded by him how lonely it was for him compared to, 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 to me. Like we were always surrounded by a lot of people, but he was an individual athlete that was, you know, working really hard. And, and he was just saying, you know, the struggle that he'd gone through to make it this far. And that's when it dawned on both of us, like, yeah, we're going to be Olympic Olympians. So wow. a special moment, yeah. I can imagine too when you meet sort of athletes like that because obviously there's so much attention on Australia. It's a home Olympics. As I said before, we know sort of the hype and everything around that. A lot of that obviously then adds pressure on say like the swimmers and Kathy and like, you know, our hockey, like all the teams that, you know, we've all got focuses on. But then you've got sort of these other sports where handball, modern pentathlon, volleyball, like teams that are sort of put together because we're the host nation where I guess you can almost connect with in a way because you've, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle to get there. It's a journey, but then you've kind of all got 
this is our moment to shine because, you know, we had Kerry Pothas on, who, of course, famously won gold in beach volleyball, but she used to be an indoor volleyball player and she talked about the initial struggles around, you know, indoor volleyball that we've seen still in Australia. So do you kind of find those athletes and kind of relate that our journey is a little bit similar because this is our moment, this is our Olympics, we can finally showcase what we do? Yes, and I think we gravitated to the, towards those people. And whenever we had joint events, and there were quite a few leading up to the Olympic Games, you know, there'd be a, a hole full of, you know, uh, aspiring Olympians, and we'd gravitate towards the smaller sports, the, the wrestlers, the weightlifters, the, the boxers. Um, yeah, I remember becoming quite close friends with one of the weightlifters, Meme Yakti, uh, and, you know, because he was also, you know, grew up very close to where I was living in, in Sydney and, you know, making that connection like, well, you went to the same school that I did and this is amazing, you know, how, how did we get this far? Um, yeah, that, you know, small sport kind of story uh, connected well, you know, and we were able to relate to more. I love hearing that. I love hearing that. You did do the opening ceremony. I saw your great post you uh, did a couple of years ago on your Instagram about that. And that dis- that I guess it was a last minute decision, was it, to attend? Because you guys were playing a game the next morning, weren't you, after the opening ceremony? So tell us that experience about sort of walking out to Stadium Australia, 110,000 people. Yeah, uh, we had a big chat about whether we should do the opening ceremony or not. And then we thought, well, we're playing Sydney the next day. Uh, sorry, we're playing Sweden the next day the world champions, one of the best teams in the world. We have, of course, no chance of coming anywhere close to them. So we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to do the opening ceremony no matter what. So we, we decided to do that. You know, before we went into the, the big stadium, they put us into a, the indoor arena where they, uh, they kind of like tri- triage you. And they just, from that space, they send teams one by one into the Olympic stadium. And we were the last to come in. And the one thing I remember vividly is walking through the tunnel of the stadium all the performers who had finished their performance had were waiting in the tunnel for a team and they were cheering us on and then when we step when when the first uh, row of the of the big column of play of people that we were walked into the stadium there was a massive roar that came out of the stadium and that kind of uh, echoed right through the tunnels and you kind of yeah the, the greatness of it just hit you really quick and fast wow it was a big thrill. I love that's what I always love hearing tape is these athletes who, you know, push through it and do it. Cause like I've always said that I, I, I don't care if I'm a swimmer and I'm competing at 6 a.m. in the next morning. Like I would want to do it. Yes, I know it's like a, a seven hour event. You've got to line up, you've got to wait. Like I realize there's a whole lot more to it than we see on TV for athletes, but it's just, it's one of those experiences where it could be a once in a lifetime opportunity. And for yourself and for the handball teams, realistically it will be a once in a lifetime opportunity so it's sort of i love that initiative that you take that it's like we're gonna do this no matter what <laughs> yeah i'm glad we did that yeah, it was it was an amazing experience you know we, they, they were briefing us before we walked in that you you know you walk in a straight line don't break formation when you pass by the the international olympic committee uh executives turn and wave <laughs> but you know we were like yes yes do this walk straight and then as soon as we go in you lose your head. You lose your head in the moment. You start spinning around and jumping and hugging people, and then you know breaking line, and then suddenly it became a big you know mess of people just you know jumping and and dancing and and yeah, and then we start meeting athletes from all over the world and having a chat, and it was it was just an amazing experience. Do you? I, I'm a massive geek in the fact that I would keep literally everything that was given to me if I was an Olympian. I mean, do you still have like that 
ochre sort of jacket, the famous uniform? Like, did you keep everything from everything to do with Sydney 2000 at all? I gave a lot of my stuff away, but I did keep the opening ceremony suit, the, the, yeah, the, the one you just described so well. Um, it has really cool art in, in the inside lining. Yeah. Um, Mambo. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, it was. It was, yeah. 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 So I, I love that. Um, yeah, it, it still sits in my cupboard. Oh. And I, I, I kept two of my jerseys. The rest I probably gave all the way. Still makes me happy, Tate. I'm glad that you sort of, you, you have that there. I mean, you touched on the fact that, you know, the next morning you're playing Sweden World Champions. They obviously went on to win the silver medal. Do you set yourself a target as the Australian handball team for that Olympics? Like, I mean, you know, I'm going to assume realistically a medal is not a possibility, but like, is it we want to win? We we want to stay within certain points? Like, what was the target for the team for Sydney 2000? Yeah, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, where, you know, we we were low on confidence because uh, even leading up to the Olympic Games, we didn't have any matchups since the 99 World Championship to, to 2000. We had no matchups with the top teams. So we were just traveling the world playing B-rated teams, uh, clubs, whatever we could find. So we we didn't have the confidence at the top level, and that was was what affected our performances quite a lot. Um, our aim was to win two matches, but I I know deep inside we weren't confident of of, of doing that, and, and that's something that uh, I realized in the game against Slovenia. Halftime, we were I think one or two goals down, and I, I as I was walking back to the changing rooms for the halftime talk, um, I understand some Slovenian because of having grown grown up in the former Yugoslavia. So two of the players were were involved in a, in a kind of a heated argument and I was saying, we're going to go down today if we don't change our, our ways. You know, this is not the team that we expected. So you saw the, I, I felt that, you know, for once, for the first time, it, it dawned on me that, you know, what are we doing? We we could be beating these teams. Why don't why don't we have the confidence to, to go for those wins? Why, why, why aren't we pushing ourselves? You know, and it was a lack of self-belief that that affected all of us, not not just me and 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 I think, you know, had we had those matches leading up to the Olympic Games, it would have been a completely different story for us because we had the capability to, to win games. Well, just on that level of hearing that from the Slovenians, did any of that change given the reception that your team eventually got throughout the tournament? I mean, a lot of people did jump on board with handball. It did become quite popular, if I'm not mistaken, throughout that tournament. So with the crowds and everything, like by the time you're playing France in that final game, had some of that belief changed a little bit given the support you were getting? Yeah, I just think it was a bit too late, uh, too little too late. Uh, we were, I think, until the last game, even against France, we had a really amazing game and France was one of the top teams in the world. You know, we, we kept them to just 28 goals. Um, we weren't go- going to beat them, but we were really close to them the, the whole match. And But it wasn't. It was, I think confidence needs to be built up, you know, not, not during the event, but leading up to the event, you know, you have to go in visualizing that you you could win against these big teams, You're visualizing and believing in yourself and, and having the whole team as a unit say, yeah, we can win these matches. We, we are, we are better than these guys. And, and we didn't have that leading up to a tournament. And once you're in the tournament, you know, it goes super fast and, and, and to try and build that confidence in tournament is I think a bit late. Which I can imagine, though, just fast-forwarding slightly now to your role as coach and we'll obviously touch on the lead-up to Brisbane in about nine years' time, but is that your biggest takeaway from your Olympic experience that you try and instill into your players right now, that that belief, that confidence that we can 
play these big teams and we can take it up to them and maybe even beat them. Absolutely. I think it's it's a big thing with me that, you know, you have to instill self-belief. You have to instill uh, courage into players um, years before they, they, they come to the big event. You know, uh, having experienced it firsthand and having seen that, you know, that, that lack of lack of self-belief affected us seriously. I don't want to see another Australian team do that. And, you know, the other thing that really affected us was we were treating these these um, our opponents as superstars. You know, we were idolizing them and, and you know, holding up, uh, holding them up in in a, in a massive pedestal, and and thinking we can never reach that high. You know, that it was a, a bit a bit self defeatist. And it's it's one of my key themes is to instill that confidence in in athletes. You know, um, that they are in the national team because they deserve to be, and they can be as good as anyone. And they have to have that self belief. In terms of what came after Sydney, now I, I believe that handball obviously got quite a bit popular. I think there was, did I read that 8,000 phone calls basically went to handball Australia afterwards and sort of the interest. What, from your perspective, maybe went wrong on that level where that wasn't taken up on? I mean, obviously we haven't seen Australia qualify for an Olympic since, uh, you know, other things that have happened. Was there maybe just something that there wasn't capacity for the interest of handball to be taken upon i mean kind of what do you see went wrong after sydney as to why we're not a handball nation now you know 23 years later after what was seemingly a bit of success with the sport in australia yeah with the benefit of hindsight i think where we failed was in building the infrastructure for developing a sport we were developing two national teams a men's and a women's national team we weren't developing the sport we weren't developing the coaches. We weren't developing the referees. We weren't uh, building the infrastructure. We need to support an interest growth. So, you know, we knew this big event was coming. We knew that there was going to be a lot of interest in handball leading up to it and especially after it. And But we just didn't develop the infrastructure to sustain that, that interest. So, yeah, as you say, um, post-Olympic Games... <laughs> A big interest in handball, 8,000 or so phone calls to the handball association offices that went either unanswered or just, uh, sorry, there's not much we can do for you because we don't have the coaches, we don't have the venues, we can't take you. So, uh, and the approach this time around uh, is going to be different. I know I work closely with federation um, uh, executives and officials, and they're taking a whole of, you know, a legacy approach, a, a sports infrastructure approach, not just a national team development approach. Is so everything ask... from participation to, to the elite level. Yeah, because I was going to touch on that because, you know, the unique thing about Brisbane being announced 11 years ahead of when they're hosting it versus the seven is there's obviously a little bit of extra time, but also this unique aspect that as Australia you know, we're in this period where we've got two Olympics fairly close to each other in, in, compared to when we had Melbourne and Sydney. So there's all these legacy aspects that I'm sure that so many of you who were involved 23 years ago are still involved in the sport to look at exactly what you're saying, what we didn't do and what we can do. Because even at the time of recording and releasing this, we're still nine years away from Brisbane. So there's still a lot to be prepared and done that I'm assuming that as you're saying there, not only will it come to bay being competitive in Brisbane 2032, but it's taking that so that after those Olympics, this sport is in a much better place than it's ever been before in Australia. We feel the full weight of this. We know that post Sydney 2000, we failed in this aspect. 
in building legacy and building infrastructure. We feel the full weight and responsibility for, for this. And this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for Hamble in Australia to, to get out of the, the trenches and, 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 and shine. So we are now working very closely with the International Handball Federation, with Sport Australia, with Australian Olympic Committee to try and build the infrastructure that we need to succeed leading up to the Olympic Games, but more importantly, to have a legacy in place after the Olympic Games so we could you know, uh, take full, of, full advantage of that interest that, that will arise from, from the, an Olympic experience. And in terms of the tracking the performance loss, we talked a little bit of, to Caleb a few months ago about the team and where they sort of play, like uh, tournaments, sorry, like the Emerging Nations Championships, things like that. Like as the coach, how are you seeing the progression just as a performance base? And are there sort of goals between now and Brisbane of let's get back to the World Championships, maybe sneakily qualify for LA 2028? Like, I mean, kind of what's sort of the, the tracking and the prospects that you're setting this team ahead of Brisbane 2032? Yeah, so uh, uh, one of my big things and themes is to try and get a lot of exposure to international tournaments for the for the team, uh, and maybe step away from the emerging nations tournaments and go into you know bigger tournaments like the World Championships. We obviously compete in the Asian Championship as well. Um, so this is uh, one of my key aims for the national team is to try and get that exposure that we need to, to be competitive at uh, to, to win games at the Olympic Games in, in Brisbane. So uh, we, we've started those discussions with international handball federations about what we need to do to, to get back into the world championship, what we need to, to do to, to be part of these big international tournaments and to make sure that we, we, we do all the things that we have to do to, to get there. Um, being part of the Asian championship is, is, is one step towards that but you know for us it's important that we start competing at the world championship as well was it something that you'd always wanted to go into tape coaching because obviously you you sort of got into coaching fairly quickly if i'm not mistaken after you you sort of retired your first stint with the national team from 2009 to 2013 and obviously back at the helm now so but was this something that you'd always kind of wanted to get into after you stopped playing yeah so i was coaching even when i was playing so i was always coaching youth teams and junior teams um, even when i was playing in my mid-20s when I went to Norway, I was 29 and playing in a, in, in a club there. And I put my name forward to coach junior teams in the club. And, you know, I I was given that opportunity, thankfully. And, you know, being in Norway, they really, the club was very supportive of that, uh, of, of anyone that would show an interest in coaching. So they sent me to seminars. They, they provided me with all the resources and, and support that I needed to, to get into coaching. And, and that was the starting step for me and, you know, gave me the motivation to continue, continue doing this. I'm loving it. Which I love the fact that, you know, obviously you went and coached Kosovo for a few years, but in 2015 at those emerging nation championships, you had to play Australia. What was that like coaching, coaching against a country that you actually had to, you know, you played for it in Olympic games. Oh no no! So I uh, I was in no man's land at that time. So I I you yeah. avoided that. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, I was uh, I joined Kosovo uh, the year after that. Ah so, right. Yeah. So you avoid. Okay. Yeah yeah. Lucky. So I was yeah. Um, <laughs> so I uh, yeah I was watching that game quite closely from from Australia um, on the live stream. Um, How is that though? Then even then, in that aspect, just watching it. Like I mean, who are you cheering for in that game? <laughs> <laughs> 
Obviously, my team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, I, I want Australia to do well in that tournament. Australia had a, a really good opportunity to, to prove themselves that we, we, we don't belong in the emerging nations uh, team of uh, list of teams. But um, yeah, we started off strongly. We we drew Faroe Islands, which was, which was the top team at the time, and we lost to Kosovo narrowly. And then after that, I think the wheels fell off the team. But um, for me, it was great to um, to to see that tournament because I had just. Two years prior, I had um, uh, resigned from the Australian national team, and during that time, I was in talks with Kosovo. So I had, you know, a specific interest in, in that match. Are there many of your teammates from Sydney 2000 still involved in the national team in some capacity, or kind of globally in other teams? And kind of, are there, you know, do a lot of you sort of, or just obviously having that bond from the Olympics, kind of try and sort of stay in touch and kind of all those fun things that I'm sure you probably could do? Yeah, quite a few of the players uh, stopped handball immediately after the Olympic Games. I think, you know, having been part of a, such a big taxing program for seven, eight years, it really takes a lot out, out of you. It takes a lot out of you, not just in terms of your, your own self, but, you know, your connections with your family, your friends. And so uh, I understood when a lot of people just took a step back immediately after the Olympic Games, took time off, some never came back to handball. But what I've noticed is since Brisbane was announced as, as the host of the Olympic Games, those Olympians are coming out, they're providing moral support, they, they're getting into coaching. You know, we have one of the legends in camera, Sasha Shestich, who came, you know, even before the announcement of Brisbane, he got interested, you know, he, his son is playing handball now and he's probably a really good contender for, for, for the Games. But that, you know, lit the fire in Sasha again. And he's, you know, back fully supporting the program. He's helping coaching. He's even playing. So it's it's great to see that. And, and not just him, but a few others are also returning to the sport and some of the women's team too. So it's, I'm really pleased with that. Well, I was going to, before we get to sort of our closing question, I was going to ask that just, I know we talked to Caleb a little bit about, you know, people who want to get involved in the sport and kind of, you know, had that, but you know, you were there in 93 when Sydney was announced to today. I mean, do you see that pathway where there are more leagues, more states, more schools, all that sort of stuff? And that if I right now want to put my hand up, I want to play handball, I can easily go online and find a club versus back when you did in the late 80s, that it was obviously a little bit trickier. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're trying to build the, cap the, the capacity and capability uh, now nine years out of the olympic games we're trying to uh, one of our aims is to educate the coaches to get access to more venues referees as well because you know you can be a referee olympian too not just a handball player olympian you can be a scorekeeper at the olympic games there are a lot of accreditations that you can get to be part of these games if you're not going to um, enjoy it as a, an athlete you could do it other ways so we're building that infrastructure and now we're working really hard with um, all the you know australian sporting institutions to, to try and you know increase interest in the sport but um uh, also uh improve our standing which i also touched with caleb as well that i mentioned to him that i'm going to paris next year tape and i've got tickets to the bronze I hope medal you're calling handball i well I, i'd like to but i mean again like, i just i want to hear from you what do, what do i expect at an olympic handball tournament i'm seeing the bronze medal games for the men's and women's like do i need to be prepared for a crowd in, in paris that i've never experienced before? because i'm so excited to be able to see both these games first of all congratulations because i think you have tickets to the best sport in the world so hey. this first tick yeah thank you second you, yeah you're going to expect um 
you know, you've seen handball. It's a really spectacular sport. Athletic athletes, um, fast, physical, the fastest sport you could play at the Olympic Games. So, so you know, brace yourself for that. Um, but also what I love about handball more than anything is that we're a small community. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, the top club in the world, if you're a top athlete in handball. As a handball player, I'll show up to any club in the world right now and I have a warm welcome. You know, there's no secrets between us. You know, you see handball coaches, they at timeouts, they will show you the tactic board and they don't cover their mouth like they're doing football, for example. Wow. So we have this, but as 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 handball players, we know we're, even though the very professional elements of handball, we're still, a, you know, a grassroots sport at heart. A community sport and we have that connection no matter where where i go i could run into the top coach in the world or the top athlete in the world and i have i can sit down and have a chat to them in a really you know down-to-earth way and, and and this is the one thing that i love about handball good to know you don't have that pretentious elite um self i don't know what to even so, call so it. you're basically saying that if i bump into like handball's you know messy that i could be best friends with him in like two hours Absolutely. Just Sweet. approach them, have a chat with them, and, and they'll love you for, for, for doing that. So All just, right. yeah, be prepared to make a lot of friends and, and, and do that. Approach them. It's on my bucket Interview list. them, talk to them, yeah. It's on my bucket who is, who is handball's Messi? Who is the goat of handball, in your opinion? The goat of handball is, by no, no doubt, is uh, Nikola Karabatic. He's a French national team player of Serbian heritage. He's been dominating the sport since he was 17. He's now 40, and he's just... He's just announced his retirement. He wants to have his last hooray at the Paris Olympics. I was going to say, at least Olympics. tell me he's retiring after the Olympics, at least. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. I think he's he's hoping to get selected in the Olympic team. I think they might just give him a, a, a jersey for a match or two, just you know, in, in honor of wow. all that he's done for the national team. His his first international tournament, I think, was the 2003 World Championship. He's won everything. He's won you know Olympic golds. He's won. Uh, uh, European Championship, Champions League, every every cup and, and MVP that there is to win, he's won it. But he's never won in home Olympic Games, so this is something that he wants to go out with. What a way to go out on. Fantastic. So make sure you, you, you reach out to him. I, I will. I will get him, we'll have him on the show next week. I mean, you say we're besties, so like we'll, we'll do that. There we go. I was going to say, I hope I see him, but no, I don't want to see him win a bronze in Paris. I want to see him win the gold. So, you know, just... Uh, Whoever, I think that's whoever, a tough for France, but you know, yeah, at least you'll see him there. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Tate, we uh, we wrap up every interview with a set of fun, get to know yourself questions. You heard these, what we asked to Caleb, and just as a reminder to our listeners and our viewers, these are based on a questionnaire that Team Canada were given ahead of the Rio and Pyeongchang Olympics. And also, there is, if you want to, there's a drawing element. You don't have to, but uh, I always put this to our Summer Olympians that it's only ever been Winter Olympians who have ever drawn. So if you feel the need to draw after this chat tape, message it in and you can draw a picture of yourself. You can draw a picture of a Canadian or Australian animal, probably preferable. Um, and you can also draw what you think the coolest Olympic medal would look like. So how are your drawing skills? Uh, <laughs> not that I would like to share with anyone, but <laughs> I like to draw from sometimes. <laughs> See how you feel after this. Uh, we'll start off with if you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Sydney, no doubt Sydney. Great answer. I like it. And you got to experience it at the same time. So there you go. In your spare time, what do you most like to do? I have a young daughter. I try and spend all the spare time that I have with her. She loves being out in the nature and walking out in in the woods. So try and do that as much as possible. Um, Yeah, 
family walks. Now, into... I'll ask how old is she? And is any, like, is she of age that she could play for Australia in, in Brisbane 2032? She's five, so yeah, it's possible, but I don't think 14 so. Fourteen-year-old, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe in gymnastics. Matt, well, there you go. Hey, is she is she like is she into sports? Like, is this something that you're kind of seeing that maybe she can follow in her father's footsteps to become an Olympian? Yeah, so she um, she's very sporty. She loves dance, uh, but uh, you know she's seen handball since the age of one. So she talks about handball all the time, and you know right. she, we'll have a, we'll have a throw almost every day. And she's a really strong left-handed thrower. So there you go. Hey. 2036, 2040, when Australia's qualifying for the Olympics without having to host it, she's there. Come on. That's that's the goal. You can see that. Uh, the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you? Yeah, I had to think about this one. And I think it came in those early years of me being part of the national team. So um, the coach had been struggling with me. Um, I wasn't the most talented athlete. I wasn't the fastest. I, I was you know, just there because of my hard work. Uh, so he, he, he'd been shifting me from position to position. And one day came up to me in, 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 during a national team camp for a world championship qualifier. I said, Tate, have you ever thought of going into refereeing? I think this would be good for you. And I looked at him, I thought, fuck you. You know, I've been, <laughs> I've, I've been training for four, four years now, trained twice a day. I'm killing myself in for this sport. And to hear this, you know, it was humbling for sure, but, uh, Wow. But it was it was heartbreaking. It was like the coach has no belief in you. And I thought either you made a mistake in selecting me or someone else selected a team for you because, you know, you, you don't just say that to a player wow. uh, of 21 years of age. Jeez. Okay. That's brutal. Well, you wrecked you. I was going to do you take any of that as inspiration. Like, as you said, like, fuck you, mate. Like, I'm going to show you that I'm better than a referee. <laughs> Yes, I think, um, well, it humbled me and that was good. I think that was a, a good thing to have happened to me because then I, I could think, well, yeah, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm not as invincible as I think I am. So, yeah, let's take, take that on, on board and, and see what I can do with that. Maybe it was secretly his goal. Maybe it was like, we need to take this kid down a couple of pegs, right? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's his method, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Uh, what is your favorite workout? Yeah, um, I don't work out so much these days. Uh <laughs> It's all right. But, none uh, of us do. It's but, all good. Yeah, but when when I when I was training in in handball, I loved. You know, I discovered the Olympic cleans sometime when I was twenty three or twenty four, and I learned the technique, and I think I got good at doing that. And I love that training, that that um, exercise. And you know, every time you you did that, you felt like you were flying. <laughs> so it's That's always a positive. Cleans. Feeling that flying that that works. If you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? I always avoid answering these questions because I I, I, I don't think I want That's to bore anyone with my presence. Here we go. Yeah, <laughs> but I've been following um, um, Ange Postecoglou's uh, rise in yep. football in the last few years, and you know, at first he, he appeared to me like a performative guy, but you know, I, I started reading his backstory and how he got to where he is, and and you can't help but like this guy. He's, he's such a, a true Australian sporting legend, and I'd love to sit with him and just hear more about you know, the insights of what it takes yeah to be, to be where he is great um, amazing great. guy you know great australian so would love to uh, you know have a chat with him and, and you know we he has this ethnic upbringing and when i read some of these stories and they really resonate with me like getting up five o'clock in the morning to watch football with his dad something that i used to do a lot and my dad used to wake me in the same way that he describes come on let's watch this you know 
Nice. Who knows what European football game that I, I wasn't that much interested in, but my dad, yes. Is there is there a pathway then just taking the Postacoglu route? Like obviously he obviously coached the Socceroos through a World Cup and then, you know, he's gone on to now coach in the Premier League. Is there like the Premier League equivalent of handball that say in a few years' time, if we've got you back on the show tape, you've coached Australia to glory at the uh, at the Olympics, so, but now you're coaching the Tottenham Hotspur of, uh, of the Premier League version of handball? Yeah, so the elite handball competition for clubs is the Champions League of Europe. It's it, you know, it, it, uh, it, the final is the final four in Cologne every year. It's an amazing tournament. You know, all the top athletes in the world aspire to be part of that tournament and, and coaches especially. But my passion is with the Australian handball team and, and I hope to be, you know, with the Australian team for, for the years to come. Correct answer. You've kept your yeah. job after this interview. Well done. Um, your favourite sandwich is... Uh, I'm a simple guy, so just a pastrami toast with you know some hot chilies. That's that does it for me. Doesn't sound too simple for me. That sounds a bit like whoa, okay, but hey, like you know, that's simple to you. That's great. <laughs> I'm a simple like peanut butter and jam, but like okay, that works. Um, sounds good. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh my gosh, I didn't think about this one. <laughs> it's good. We like to put you on the spot. Superpower. Oh my gosh. I don't know, some kind of superpower that could make Australia and uh, the world's best handball nation. Hey, How about that? that's a great answer. Yes. I don't know what that superpower would be, but I know mind control. Maybe like, you know, uh, what's his name from X-Men where you could like control these European, like Norway, stop winning handball and make Australia win. That could work. <laughs> You know, let's see. Uh, that's something I've been to. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and, and just as, as a special note, as always, we're scared of Norway because it's not just it's winter and summer. They're taking over the world. I think Norway, we, we keep saying this every episode. Uh, what is the best candy in the world? Oh. Um, I, I don't have much candy, but I do like um, Turkish delight. Oh, so maybe yes. I'll say Turkish delight. Yes. Yeah. And like, um, like the proper, like, I mean, the chocolate covered, like Cadbury stuff is fine, but that, that, that real, pro you go to a Turkish restaurant, you get that, like the powdered, is it coconut on it? Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I don't know. I, uh, I was in Kosovo one day and uh, a friend of mine brought me some from Skoda, an Albanian town. And there's a family there that has been doing Turkish delight for now more than a hundred years. And they have wow. this secret recipe that, and it's known as the best Turkish delight in the world. And he brought it to me, I was like, just Turkish delight. And I tasted it and he says, you better be sitting down. And I thought, my gosh, this is the most amazing thing <laughs> I've ever had. It was just mind blowing. So. Oh. Skodra, if you're in Skodra, Albania, look out for this, you know, historic Turkish delight, you'll find it. And if I didn't have a plan to be, now I do. Uh, I'll put it on the bucket list after Paris next year. I'll head over to Albania. I like that. Uh, as a kid, who was your favorite sports team? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> there was two teams that I, I really loved. I, uh, the, the first one was Hajduk Split. It was a football club from, from Croatia. Um, I grew up in the former Yugoslavia, as I said earlier. So football was the sport I was watching most, and Hajduk Split was one of them. But a couple of years later, uh, Pristina Football Club from Kosovo was a local club. Uh, got into the Super League of Yugoslav Super League. So that became my favorite team. Do you get, when you come to Australia, like, I mean, back then it would have been, what, the NSL now, obviously it's the A-League. Do you sort of get involved in any and, you know, jump on the Sydney FC or Western Sydney or something like that or sort of don't really pay too much attention to it? No, not really. I, I never watch sport anymore as a spectator. So what I tend to do, even handball, I, I don't tend to watch it live. What I'll do is I'll, I'll go back to the recording. I'll take bits and pieces and I'll just, you know, look, watch it that way. What's the highlight? 
yeah, well, it, not, not so much the highlights, but more try and understand, you know, if, if I see a team is playing a tactic that I really like, I try and follow them as much as possible and try and, you know, start, stop, start, stop a lot and try and see some of the more intricacies of, of the game. Um, I used to watch a lot of football and athletics in, in my past. Uh, these days, it's just handball. I like that. I mean, just watch handball. Everyone just needs to watch handball. That's just the answer to everything, I think, Tate. Just, it's, it's a solid answer. Uh, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Um, I'm a bit nostalgic for Sydney in the 1990s. So if I could live in Sydney in the 1990s, mid 90s, uh, I'd love to do that again. <laughs> I like that time. Like I like yeah. that sort of that. That's a, a way of adding an extra element to that answer. I like that. Yeah, so time and space. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Sydney in the mid 90s had this vibe about it. You know, you leading up to an Olympic event. Uh, I don't know. I just the Hamble community was very tightly knit. You know, we'd play games, we'd go out for a walk in Newtown or, or the beaches or just that community that we had going. And, and, and you know, I, I felt invincible in those days for some reason. I'm not sure why. I was just flying the whole time. Oh, so great it was answer. a great time, great time for me. So if I could be in Sydney in the 1990s, bring it on. And Brisbane, if you're listening, get that same vibe for the city. You've got, you've got longer to do that now, right? Like, come on, no excuses for Brisbane. Um, I love this question because you can interpret however you want. When you were little, what was one thing you always thought? It's so open-ended. I love it. Like I've literally, people have answered this question as I was always hungry. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, or I wanted to be an astronaut. Like you can do whatever with this you wanted to. Oh my gosh, I haven't, I haven't thought of this one um, when I was little. Just yeah, just let me let me tap back into my little life. <laughs> get to the vault, get into the archive. Yeah, because I, I was born in Australia, I remember thinking a lot. I just wanted to be in Australia. I, I wanted to be back in Australia the whole time I was there. I was like, uh, I had this feeling that one day I'll go back to Australia. And you I did. remember that being. Yeah, yeah. So I was, you know. Um, Power of thought tape. It works. Yeah. Put your mind to it and you believe. I like that. Last one I'll end it on. Again, this is, a, this is generally one that you've got one or you don't. If you don't have an answer to this one, it's fine. Do you have a favorite joke that you tell? I'm not much of a joke teller, but I have one joke that I tell a lot. And I think everyone that knows me has probably heard this from me. So it's a, it's a, it's a French tourist. He has the front a local judge for having eaten a koala. So the judge is furious. It's like a protected animal. How could you? It says, but your honor, please understand. It was a matter of life and death. And he pleads with, with the judge and the judge kind of understands his, his position and dismisses the case. But before he dismisses the case, he calls him up to the bench and he says, don't do that again. But I'm just curious. What did it taste like? He looks at the judge and goes, hmm. A little bit like platypus. Hang <laughs> <laughs> on, I need to press this. Um, <laughs> wow, that's um, that's that's a solid joke. Well done. I like that. Do you tell that to your players before a big match to kind of get them in the zone? Or yeah, no, I think I've talked to anyone that that's near me. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I'll tell yeah. that in Paris next year. We'll see how that goes down. <laughs> I'll meet Mr. Messi of handball and I'll, 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 bring yeah. that, I'll bring that up to him. Tate, this has been a lot of fun to be able to hear your journey and just the journey of the sport and, and where we're at and everything along those lines. We really appreciate your time. But anybody who wants to follow you or your journey, social media or anything, and 
again, if you want to also just plug handball in terms of, you know, we've got Caleb to plug it, but if people want to get involved, sign up to their local club, where, where can they go? Yeah, so go to Handball Australia website or any of the city's uh, clubs' websites. Uh, send a, send a message. Say you're interested in handball. If you're between the ages of twelve, thirteen, and and sixteen, you've never heard of handball. Here's the opportunity to to get onto an Olympic program or project and be the next Australian Olympian. Um, yeah, simple as that. We'll we'll try and do the rest for you. So just come along to trainings and and. You'll be part of this exciting project. Move forward. We'll be eagerly watching yeah. this journey over the next nine years. And and I'm telling you now, I'm going to be in that front row for that first game in Brisbane 2032. Hell, I'll hopefully be commentating it. Who knows? But, Tabe, it's been such an honour to have you on the show, mate. Thank you so much for your time and off the podium today. Thank you, Ben. I really appreciate being here. It's been so much fun. <laughs> And an absolute massive thanks again to Tape there for his time. I'm still so in awe over the fact that a TV network wanted to put together a team filled with Australian rules football players, basketball players, rugby players, cricket players. To be honest, what are they doing? Throwing a ball? They don't know anything else outside of that. To to try and upseed the national team of a sport to go to an Olympics. Just think about that tomorrow if all of a sudden Fox Sports were like, no, we don't think that the Australian men's rugby sevens team can compete in Paris next year. So in you come AFL player, NRL player, super rugby player. Like it's just incredible to think that that was an idea. So uh, an amazing story there from tape and just everything else that came with that journey up until Sydney 2000. And just incredible to think that we now have a chance that we can learn from mistakes that were made post-Sydney to enable the sport to grow in Australia and just and see where it can take us. Because I, I know I shit on a lot about how much handball is a great sport, but I implore anybody listening to this show, if you've never watched handball, if it's something that you catch some highlights of during an Olympics every four years, like watch it. It is so entertaining. It is such a fun sport. And it is definitely a sport that I can see countries that aren't handball nations really adopting because it is it is very entertaining and fun to watch. So, Tape, thank you very much for your time. If you want to see the video version of this interview as well, that is, of course, also available via our YouTube channel where you can subscribe. You can do that on all our other social channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, X, whatever it's called this week, TikTok, Threads. We're on them all. Get on there, get on board, support the show. We appreciate that. And subscribe to the podcast as well. Of course, if you're listening to this part, you're listening via a podcast. So if you haven't already, subscribe. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts. We're on all of them as well. Search for us. Give us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. Next week, we have a fantastic chat with you. We're returning to the sport of softball. Now, this is a sport that we haven't had many athletes on. In fact, we had Joey Lyon on a couple of years ago. But this is only going to be our very second athlete ever from the sport of softball. Ellen Roberts, Tokyo Olympian from Australia. And she also has a really fascinating journey to her sport and a real big connection to the Sydney Olympics. She was a young girl when the Sydney Olympics were on and she attended one event at the Sydney Olympics that made her want to become an Olympian. I don't want to spoil it right now. I want you to tune in next week to listen to it. But it's a fascinating, fantastic journey from that one moment to her making an Olympic appearance at Tokyo. And as we know with softball, it's kind of the cocktease of Olympic sports, that and baseball. It's sort of the ISC are like, yeah, you can have an Olympic appearance. No, you can't. Yeah, you can. No, you can't. 
So we are going to learn a little bit about what that does to an athlete when one minute you're an Olympic sport, the next minute you're not. And just what that meant to her when she was able to have that opportunity to go to an Olympic Games once softball was included in the Tokyo program. So it's a fascinating chat with Ellen. That is next week. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommend that. And I know you're going to get a lot out of that. And after that, we've got some more great interviews. We've got opening ceremony coverages, of course. And then the Youth Olympics are only weeks away. Can you believe that? And then we go into Paris next year. Of course, months away now. Seven months away from an Olympic Games happening, a full Olympic Games, as well as the Youth Olympic Games in the meantime. So plenty of great stuff to come here on Off the Podium. Thanks again to Tape for his time on the program today and for you listening to it wherever you are listening to on planet earth or beyond shout out as always to the birmingham ball jason momoa put a sock in it mountain and remember to razzle dazzle go left <laughs>